and welcome to the latest episode of the Scottish Education Show. My name is James McEnany. I'm a lecturer, former secondary school teacher and journalist specialising in Scottish education and also the author of the book Class Rules, The Truth About Scottish Schools. And I'm going to be your host as we explore the latest news, the biggest issues and the untold stories in Scottish education. So let's get started. So I think we should start with a good news story this week, which is the confirmation that Scotland apparently has the, or continues to have, to be accurate, the best educated population or adult population in Europe. This has been reported in various papers through the week and SNP have, you know, of course, been very keen to get some attention on it and, you know, fair enough. For some reason, the people who always kind of you know jump on on the stories that look bad were, were really quiet about it as well you know politicians and such but I, I suppose maybe they were just very busy this week the um the basic headline story is that more than half of 25 to 64 year olds have completed some sort of post-school course or qualification that meets a particular level in what's called the international standard classification of education um, which sounds hugely dull and technocratic. <laughs> but specifically, this is relating to qualifications at levels five to eight of that framework. And level six is a bachelor's degree, seven's a master's, eight's a doctorate. Level five is the interesting bit, actually, I suppose. It's called um, short cycle tertiary education. And it seems to refer pretty specifically and directly to like occupational or like employment focused qualifications, things that people do as part of, you know, getting or, or I suppose keeping jobs. And as somebody who teaches in a college, actually, I, I I understand the principle of this. But it's worth, I think, probably noting at this stage that uh, certainly according to Eurostat, such qualifications basically don't exist in some countries, including two of the big hitters that we always um, understandably compare ourselves to, which is Estonia and Finland. They're also extremely rare in countries like uh, Poland, with its very good education system, and Germany, which is interesting because there is sometimes a view that Germany is, um, as, a, as a country, much, much better at uh, vocational education. And maybe it is, but if it is, it doesn't use the same, or seem to use this same kind of method that we are using. So we can't say from this information that Scotland has got the, the best degree level educated you know population in Europe or anything like that because that isn't exactly what the data's shown and you do sometimes see people um probably partly because of the way it's uh, reported who talk about it on those terms and that isn't isn't really the case and there's no doubt there's an element of this that kind of does, that is going to depend upon exactly how you're choosing to measure things but that's always the case. So yeah, I mean, I'd like to get a look and see exactly how those short employment focused courses are used, how they relate to other levels of education, um, how transferable even the qualifications are, because that would make a difference. There's a difference between um, a, a, a course or qualification that basically just allows you to do one thing and a course or qualification that opens up lots of avenues. There would be big differences, I think, to these numbers if we focus purely on degree level education. I'm sure I've seen information before that um, it really changes the equation when you start focusing on higher levels, um, things like masters and particularly doctorate level qualifications. So I'd be interested to see all of that. I'd be interested to see the social breakdown for the figures for Scotland. If more than half of people have got some kind of qualification at this level, well, that's fine, but which half? And how does that half compare to other countries and what they've got? Do they have a slightly lower proportion of the entire population gaining these qualifications, but a much more even um, and fair spread of the people who get them? For example, we don't know. And yes, I would like to find out more about that, particularly if, it's ever, if it ever looks as though it's going to become some big major issue. But nonetheless, none of it changes the fact that despite the, you know, the pretty constant howls from the people who say that our education system is failing or has failed. Well, that clearly, certainly in this case, and in others, to be fair, um, that isn't how others see us. 
this is the same in terms of the way people look at things like the curriculum in this country, curriculum for excellence and its and its development is something that is seen as at the very, very least an interesting development around the world and often regarded as a really sort of fascinating model for going forwards. But people will tell you that everything is, is completely failing, it's all a disaster. Um, so you hear the same about kind of all levels of Scottish education. But as we can see from this, you know, um, taking the seeing ourselves as others see us approach, it's quite clear that things are much, much better than many people would have you believe. And it's not really a huge surprise. You know, even if we've had some major issues over the years, Scotland still has a very, very strong, at least a very strong university system. So we probably shouldn't be surprised to know that Scotland has maintained this level in terms of tertiary education and the level across the across the population. I suspect people who argue very strongly against tuition fees would say that has something to do with it as well. Realistically, it's more complicated than it's been presented, as I say, as is always the case, but it's still a sign that the you know, the, the apocalyptic predictions about Scottish education, which are generally politically motivated, are, at least in some degrees, um, pretty off the mark. So the next thing I want to talk about are a couple of stories that actually, you know, this week have come from England rather than Scotland, but I think are important and um, relate to issues that have affected the system up here. So mercifully, they're not affecting us directly which is wonderful, <laughs> thanks to devolution, but they do have an impact in, in a kind of broader sense. So the first story is what you may have seen new guidance issued to schools in England about apparently, you know, dealing with apparently sensitive topics um, in, in the classroom. Now, obviously, if you're an idiot, then you could choose to look at this as perfectly normal, a completely reasonable move. But if you're not an idiot, then you see it for what it is. So note, for example, that the Times spun it into an attack on Black Lives Matter and Stonewall, the two groups that are obsessive, bad faith culture warriors and you know racists and homophobes, let's face it, uh, seem to hate more than any other organisations. And actually, I'd also recommend that you have a read at a thread by a teacher in England uh, called Tabitha McIntosh, who also, by the way, hosts a, a show on Teachers Talk Radio that's worth listening to. Um, and she's got a thread, it's the, the history of the Conservative Party moral panics about partisan teachers. And it's very, very interesting and takes you through the last maybe 30 odd years of the Tories and includes obviously Margaret Thatcher's famous um, line about kids being taught homosexuality is okay or being robbed of their future or whatever it was exactly. So long story short, this move by the UK government isn't about dealing with any actual issues. There are already rules about impartiality in school. There, are, There is no reason to genuinely think that there is any actual problem with this, unless you are setting out on the kind of, you know, reds under the bed type of stuff. This is about whipping up more of the culture wars nonsense that, that this UK government are completely dependent upon. You've got to keep that in your head here that without all of that stuff, they are done. So they need to keep that going. And it's also designed to scare teachers away from engaging with topics that a right-wing political party in government doesn't like. It's an authoritarian attempt to control classrooms for direct and indirect political purposes. And even if it doesn't change legal guidelines, that doesn't actually matter because the goal here isn't to pull teachers into court, but rather to have this general chilling effect on their practice. Now, one of the things that stood out to me about this actually was the fact that I didn't see a lot of the people um, who are very vocal, particularly on English, edu Twitter, um, but who like to present themselves as guardians of rigour and the independence of the profession and all that kind of stuff, you know, that mob. Um, they didn't seem to have much to say about all this. I can't imagine why that would be. The other thing that stands out from it, of course, is that it's a real reminder of how grateful we should be that education is devolved. I have never and I have never and will never shy away from criticizing the SNP and their handling of education, their, their approach and their philosophy towards how they handle education. It's not just about the odd bit of incompetence. There are genuine fundamental problems with the way in which Scotland's 
you know, party of government for what are we at? 14 years? Who even knows anymore? You know, forever it feels. Uh, but there are genuine problems with the way in which that party understands and addresses and deals with education. And they do go beyond the, the basic incompetence that we see on a fairly regular basis as well. Um, so I've never shied away from criticising that. I've never shied away from criticising the way in which our system operates more broadly. There are huge vested interests in the system. There are it, it, um, massive difficulties with making progress and overcoming those kinds of interests. But none of that changes the fact that it's a really, really, really good thing that education is in Scotland is and always has been completely distinct from education in England. It's not even just a case of devolution, although devolution um, absolutely cements it. And there are a couple of things sort of in my head around that. One of them is that for all my issues with the SNP, I cannot see the SNP even attempting something like this. And if they did attempt it, which I genuinely, I, I just do not believe would happen, but even if they did, I think we can be confident there would be a complete professional rejection of the attempt to use classrooms and use teachers in this way and to scare them in this kind of way. So you might think from that, right, well, that's just an English story, that can't, that, that doesn't affect us at all. And in a lot of ways, that's mercifully true, but as much as we should, be, you know, this is an example of why you should be thrilled Scottish education has devolved. Let me take you back to August last year and an intervention a very ill-judged intervention um, from Oliver Mundell, MSP of the Scottish Tories. Now, Oliver Mundell is their education spokesperson. I think they're using that phrase shadow minister or something stupid like that. He's their education spokesperson. But you don't hear from him very much. Um, Megan Gallagher seems to get more of the press these days. And I'm not really sure why. I always sort of rather felt that handing the education brief to Oliver Mundell after the last election was a sign the Tories were basically bored of it. They tried to make it a big uh, issue and the lead up to that election has completely failed. So now, ah, well, it doesn't really matter anymore. So hand it off to Oliver Mundell. But the the comments that he made back then were in response to, some of you might remember this, but the completely unremarkable news that updated GTCS guidance for teachers in Scotland was going to retain, not, not create, but retain the focus that exists in Scotland, in the profession, on social justice. But that was an opportunity for the Tories. Now, as I say, this was hugely ill-judged and in many, it really just ended up with lots of criticism and just, you know, mockery of them. But when when that was happening, we had Oliver Mundell banging his drum and telling, surprise, surprise, the Times, that schools are, quote, not the place for political ideology. And he continued, um, I'm quoting directly here, these unsubtle hints seem to have been influenced more by the SNP's agenda than Scottish values. When our education system was truly world leading, we focused a lot more on teaching and learning. Our schools are meant to prepare young people for future opportunities and give them the platform to decide their own views and values, not demand they conform to a rigid set of beliefs. All of that in relation to the fact that we were continuing to talk about the importance of social justice in teaching standards. And okay, it's about a different specific thing, but the attempt is very, very similar there. Chillingly similar to what the UK government are doing just now. And it rather suggests to me that left to their own devices, you get the impression the Scottish Tories would be perfectly happy to engage in the same sorts of attacks on teachers and schools as their counterparts down south. It's good to know they're never going to be in power up here, but it's also a reminder that we always need to be vigilant about that sort of poisonous weaponization of education and not allow it to take hold, or I suppose maybe you could argue it already has taken hold, but at least always be able to identify and fight back against it. But actually, I think it probably goes a little bit beyond that as well. We need to remember that like I was saying there about that kind of, you know, about fighting back against it, this isn't just about like holding the line. 
that these interventions, you know, in August from the Scottish Tories and now from the, the Tories in England, this kind of culture wars, you know, don't talk about this stuff. It isn't just a reminder that you need to talk about this stuff and the, 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 this kind of guidance is is obviously, you know, the antithesis of what of what should be should be happening. But actually, it's a reminder of how much more we need to do because this is a reaction against progress. So what you need to do is continue to make progress. We need to do more to engage on people in difficult, complicated topics, particularly around things like um, race and sexuality. So something, a little thing here that caught my eye, a tweet from um, Dr. Marina Shapira of Stirling Uni, who's who's brilliant, um, who said that students coming from Scotland, and again, quoting the tweet from here, already know next to nothing about race, racism and immigration policies. For them, the basic content of my module on race, ethnicity and immigration comes as a shock. They all comment that schools didn't teach them about these issues at all. So far from restricting the approach to these issues, which is what's happening in England, or maybe um, being content that at least we are not as bad as them, which is the common thing in Scotland, the truth really is that there's still an awful lot more work to be done before we are really educating young people um, properly, giving them the education that they deserve. And this latest move by the Tories is actually a reminder of that. Uh, finally, last little thing on the news this week was another, as it happens, idiotic story from the world of English education that once again involves the Times. Try to generate some outrage this time from schools not referring to mums and dads, but instead using terms like grown-ups. So as per, cue the outrage, cue the claim, this is wokeism, that, you know, this is, um, you know, why, why can't they just leave children alone? Blah, 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 all this kind of stuff. But once again, if you are not an idiot, then you can see through this very easily because avoiding terms like mums and dads in schools has been policy for longer than many of us can even remember. We use parent or guardian, for example. That's kind of a common thing up here, certainly. Um, and I know a lot of teachers whose response to this story was actually to to confirm, no, in our classroom, we use, we use grown-ups all the time. That's the phrase that we would always choose to use, and there's, there are really good reasons for that. So why is it that we, is this some sort of, you know, attack on normality? Is is this, you know, the latest example of trans rights activists, you know, ch changing the world around us? Well, no, actually we do it because there's loads of kids out there for whom the phrase mums and dads is not appropriate. There's kids who live in care. There's kids who've lost or never known one of their parents. There's kids with two mums and two dads. There's all sorts of reasons. People might not want mums and dads to be used. There's all sorts of reasons why using a phrase like your grown-ups or parents and guardians when it comes to letters and things like that is infinitely better. But the view of the times, if you take the article at face value, the view of the times towards those kids seems to be, well, fuck you. But that's, I mean, which is hardly a big shock, admittedly, right? Because I suppose in many ways all they're doing is reflecting what their readers think. So on the one hand, you've just got your kind of basic, you know, outrage generates clicks level of journalism that we're all uh, that we're all subjected to. And it does generate clicks because the simple fact is lots and lots of people are going to click on it. But we should particularly note, I think, the way it contributes. This one in particular, yes, there are issues, you know, there's the, the complete dismissal of kids in care. There's a complete dismissal of kids who've been bereaved, for example. But I don't think that's the main driver of this story. I think the thing we need to be careful of here, and we should note here, is the way it contributes to these general currents of homophobia and transphobia that are clearly becoming more and more powerful. So ask yourself, you know, if, if there wasn't an anti-trans moral panic going on right now, would that story about schools aren't using mums and dads, would it have run just now? I'm, I'm not so sure. Because it isn't new. And it isn't news, but what it does do is allow the track, you know, it, it keeps the trans panic show on the road. And this is another area where you can see something where it might be tempting to look at a story from here north of the border and think, you know, at least we are not like that. 
but Scotland isn't immune from this specific form of, of this kind of social poison. So just today, for example, the Herald rehashed the story about the, quote, controversial child sex survey, which always involved, really was always driven by a huge, huge chunk of homophobia. All the, um, all the outrage about that story when it happened at its core was coming from a place realistically, you know, all that, you know, to leave kids alone, the, the, these questions are intrusive, et cetera, et cetera, when actually the thing that they all cared about was things that it was asking about anal sex. So there was always a huge amount of homophobia driving this. But the Herald has now rehashed that story for the flimsiest of reasons in directly homophobic and transphobic terms. Now, it's only even come up because um, a ridiculous thing, a ridiculous attempt to basically, you know, narrow down the Scottish survey and stop trans people being able to answer, honestly, frankly, um, was defeated. And as part of that coming out in, in court, there's been a mention that this survey could be updated to be a bit more inclusive because there have been some criticisms that have been a bit heteronormative which is not an unfair criticism actually at all. But to the intro to the story the Herald have written, and I promise you, this is a direct quote. The only change I'm making here is reading it out as if it had sentences with commas in the right place. So here's how the story starts. Ministers are considering changing the controversial pupil sex survey, which asks kids if they have had anal sex to cater for transgender children. It can be revealed. I've actually just realized I can't even read that with, with as if it's got commas in the right places. It's just a terrible sentence. But you get the point there, you know. Changing the controversial sex survey and then the specific, which asked kids about anal sex. And then, as an in, to cater for transgender children. It can be revealed. Like it's some sort of huge earth-shaking story that can now be, that can, you know, can now be made public. We might not quite print articles anymore about how, you know, the gays are coming for your kids. But even in a country like Scotland, where we like to tell ourselves how progressive we are. It seems we're still quite happy to print articles presenting these kids as a threat to your kids, a threat to their education specifically. So Scotland is by no means immune to the sort of um, currents that you're seeing develop in England just now. We are insulated from them to a degree, um, certainly in terms of the, the direct actions of the UK government because devolution protects us from those. But we are, it would be foolish to think that the social currents that sit behind both of those two stories that we've just looked at there are things that do not and cannot affect Scotland. We are not immune to this, as we very clearly see in Scotland, you know, we are not immune to this trans panic stuff. We are not immune to the increasing wave of homophobia. We are not immune to the the culture wars battle about trying to restrict education and censor what kids can engage with. We are not immune even to and it's, it, you know, it's not quite here yet, but is anyone going to be all that surprised if and when this, the latest book burning and book banning nonsense in America makes it over here because of, I don't doubt a second for a second, the usual suspects probably reported in the usual papers. Scotland is not immune to this stuff at all. The fight against it is a long way from being over, but it's a fight that absolutely has to be won because the alternative for young people yes for lgbt plus young people yes for care experienced young people yes for young people who have you know lost family members yes for young people from anything but an absolutely you know standard family background but actually for all of them because we're all affected by this and a whole society gets poisoned by this stuff so the fight is a long way from being over but it absolutely must be won Now it's time to move on to our guest for this week, who is actually following on from last week's show. Because last week, as I sat down to record the podcast, 
This story sparked into life on Twitter when an actor and author asked for help to keep a 26-year-old promise to an inspiring primary school teacher. And I talked a little bit about this last week and said at the time that I hope to speak to him in the future. Well, that's exactly what I did. Okay, so Kerry, thanks very much for uh, joining us on the, the Scottish Education Show. Welcome. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me, James. Um, I, I really, uh, thanks for taking the time, obviously, to, to pop in and, and talk to us. The reason that we are talking to you today is obviously um, this very modern thing off the back of a Twitter thread that people have been people have been talking about. But to introduce um, listeners to you first, could you just tell us a bit about you know who you are? What do you do? Definitely. So I'm Kenny Boyle. I am an actor, a writer and a playwright. Um, in 2021, I won the New Playwrights Awards and I'm working on the play that comes out of that. And uh, I was in a feature film called Lost at Christmas, which you may have seen on BBC Scotland or BBC One on Christmas Day, which had uh, Sylvester McCoy, Natalie Clark, Sanjeev Kohli and a bunch of wonderful people in it. So those are probably my my highlights at the moment, um, my, my big hitters. Uh, so actor, writer and playwright, that's who I am. Cool. And um, so th this, uh, as I say, that's not why you're here today. The reason you're here today is because of this Twitter thread. I, I've actually mentioned it on the show. I was, I was sitting down to record an episode of the show and somebody tagged me and like, they bought me your thread, you know, maybe you can help with this. And I saw it straight away and I thought, this is, this is amazing. And I did mention it then, but I really wanted to come back to it. So for anybody, I'll obviously, I'll, I'll link to the thread in the description to the episode. But um, for people who didn't see it, could you tell us the story that was, that was going on there? You were basically, you launched onto Twitter to say, I made a promise 26 years ago. I've got no idea how to keep it. Maybe Twitter can help me out. So can you tell us what, what's the story you were telling? What's the promise that you were setting out to try and keep? Yeah, yeah. Do you know, I've thought about this many times over the course of my life, actually, because when I was um, graduating, I suppose, primary seven, moving from primary school to high school, this um, incredible teacher that I had called Mrs. McLennan, uh, who had supported me so much in my, in my uh, education, um, said to me, when you publish your first book, I would like a copy. And uh, because I was 11, I was like, oh, absolutely. That probably won't take very long. I can get her a copy when I'm 12 or 13. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, and I'm 37. Um, and my first book is now coming out. And I've never forgotten that that little conversation that we had where she where she showed so much support of me and didn't, she didn't pose it as an if. She said, when you publish your first book, because she believed in me so much that she knew it would happen. In a way, I feel bad that it took me 26 years to do it. Um, so I wanted to get a copy of this book to Mrs. McLennan. So I took to Twitter with no information. I am hopeless. I couldn't remember her first name. I, I didn't know how old she was, because when you're 11, all teachers are just old. They just categorize as adult. Um, so yes, that's so right. Wasn't... It's like that thing about how they all live in the school as well, isn't it? You know, they're just yeah, exactly. a separate species, and that's absolutely fine. Yeah, and you can't see them walking about the streets because it would blow your tiny eleven-year-old yes. mind. <laughs> um, so, so I, I didn't know how old she was. I didn't, I didn't really know where she might be living now. I had nothing to go on, and I also didn't really want to mention the name of the primary school because some of my experiences in the primary school before she was my teacher were quite negative. And the last thing I wanted was for this really good primary school to start getting hate from people because of things that happened ages ago. Um, so I didn't even want to mention the name of the primary school. Somehow, Twitter did its magic. I got retweets from all sorts of people, like people, I got politicians, MPs, um, the Times Educational Supplement, um, all, these, all these people retweeting it. And miraculously, um, or maybe not miraculously, actually, because she made such an impact on people's lives. I started getting these comments and private messages saying, like, I remember Mrs. McLean and she was wonderful because it wasn't just my life that she impacted because a good teacher can impact so many lives all at once. Um, so people remembered her. And eventually her granddaughter um, saw this thread and she was like, I think oh, that's, wow. that's, yeah, <laughs> she was like, I think that's my grand. Um, 
so she got in contact with with her gran um, and gave me an email address. And exactly the same time, her uh, Mrs. McLennan's nephew's wife had seen the threads. Um, I, I think that's right. I yeah, I think, I think that's the one there. that I saw somebody had said, like, I think this is like my, my, my husband's auntie or something like that. Like, wow. That, that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She she commented on on your um your retweet. Yeah, she she had seen it as well. So she showed, I keep on calling her Mrs. McLean and it's awful. Her name's Margaret. I'm not 11 anymore. I can use those <laughs> We're adults names. now. Exactly. So uh, she showed Margaret the Twitter thread. So she took a picture of, of her reading the thread and she posted it. So both these things happened at once. So I found her, essentially, is, uh, is where the story is at just now. And we're going to meet sometime in the near future. I've actually literally just received an email from her whilst I'm talking to you. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's all, it's all happening right now. That's amazing. And, it, you know, obviously we say it a lot these days, you know, the power of social media and stuff like that. And a reminder as well, you know, something I, I talk about a lot, usually in... Um, not in particularly positive terms about Scotland being this tiny wee country where everybody knows everybody. There's, there's all sorts of reasons that's a bad thing. Uh, but sometimes you see the benefits of it because you get these lovely stories like that. What Something I'm quite interested in, though, um, and I suppose it's the thing that sits behind all of this that makes it such a powerful story. Your thread sort of alluded to, and you've mentioned it again there, quite an unhappy experience. Um, at primary school, you talk about, you know, getting into, you get into bother, your friends get into bother. And the way you, it's hard to tell, obviously, because you know, Twitter's these little bursts, you know, but like you sort of paint a picture of somebody who just felt, I don't know, felt maybe isolated, felt as if it wasn't, this wasn't the place for you, or it wasn't supporting you or something like that. And I'm quite interested in this side of it, I suppose. I'm quite, if you're okay to talk about that, like without mentioning the school, fair enough, but what was it like for you at primary school until this amazing teacher rocks up and everything seems to change? Yes, absolutely. So I, um, it might not, it might not be clear from the way that I, talk and put myself out there but I'm a total introvert like um social situations I I've I'm diagnosed with social anxiety and I think probably I've kind of always had it uh I don't really like groups I don't like I don't really like that way of learning most of the time either I don't love being in surrounded by people I feel sort of claustrophobic did, so did, did we not establish a minute ago that you're an actor was that not yeah. <laughs> a bit of a disconnect there obviously I know totally yes I am but the thing about acting is you get given a script you know exactly what you're going to say and everyone else sits quietly and listens to you so it's it's a totally different thing um but yes no I know it's a bit of a contradiction um so when I went into primary school as this introverted shy uh kid that loved comic books and loved books and loved all these things um I was delighted when the first other child I saw had the same backpack as me. We both had Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle backpacks. And so I thought that that kid's my friend and I don't need to worry about anyone else. Um, that particular um, boy had, had already got a bad reputation before he even started school because of his family background. So everyone had their eyes on him. They thought he's going to be a troublemaker. We know, we know what he's like. He was prejudged, which is really unfair by certain teachers so whenever anything happened, look, first of all, sometimes when things happened, he did do them. Uh, I don't want to paint him as an angel. Uh, sometimes he did do them. But a lot of the time, he was just the easiest person to blame. So I sort of, I, I, you know, I wanted to stick up for him. So I got myself in a lot of trouble defending my friend. And then I kind of started getting tired with the same brush. We were um, sort of outcasts. We get bullied a lot um, on the playgrounds by other children and stuff like that. And I, I don't think it was ever really taken very seriously. So we started taking ourselves out of the situation, me and this, this boy and another friend that we had. Um, we'd climb, climb over fences. We'd go play in the wood at playtime. And we'd, uh, we'd go hang out in the graveyard because we were clearly bound to grow up to be goths. Uh, and we'd take ourselves away from the other children because a lot of the time the other children would uh, bully us, which was never really addressed by the school. And then almost worse than that was that when we were in class, you know, we'd get, we'd get kind of distracted. We were, all three of us were quite creative in our way. 
So my creativity came out in, in the form of scribbling things in the back of my jotter. I'd finish my work and then I'd go to the back of my jotter, I'd scribble down stories or I'd draw pictures in the margins um, of things that were in my head because I was always imagining these stories and I kind of just had to get them out. And when the teacher we had would see these things, she would send me again and again to the headmaster, the headmaster, the head teacher's office. So I'd get sent to the head teacher over and over and over again for all sorts of things. And the head teacher would, you know, she was totally overwhelmed with all the stuff she was doing. She'd like assign punishments. I'd go do the punishments and then the cycle would continue because I couldn't stop what I was doing. It's part of me. So it was pretty miserable. Uh, I didn't like going to school. Um, my friends didn't like going to school. We, uh, we weren't enjoying ourselves. And then, now this is the part where I definitely don't want the name of the school coming out because it's quite controversial. The teacher that we had was fired um, because of something that I still don't know the exact details about, but essentially she hadn't taught us for a year. I don't know any more of the details. I'm sure there's people that were probably around at the time that know exactly who I'm talking about now. Oh, yeah, there'll be, be files somewhere, I'm sure, yeah. Yeah. So um, our whole class was a year behind in our education and it had been picked up and obviously there was all this drama going on about that but the, to the to the school's credit they were really good in keeping that from us so the children themselves didn't know that we basically wasted a year of our lives but then came Mrs McLennan and it was her job to teach us two years in one essentially and keep our education going and get us back on track and she was absolutely wonderful because the stress that she must have been under must have been incredible the scrutiny from all the all the other teachers from all the parents teaching two years at once but she never passed that stress on to us we never knew that anything was wrong she taught us like so so peacefully and so calmly and with such dedication that we never knew that we'd lost a year of our lives education wise uh, she was really great with that and I showed her a story I'd written because I was still writing stories and as soon as she saw the story, she sent me to the headmaster's office. I keep saying headmaster, it's headmistress. Um, sent me to the headmistress's office. And I thought, oh no, I've it started again. Um, yeah, that, story that, is... new teachers come in and this maybe things seem better briefly. And now this is us back in the same cycle. I thought I was doing something that was good. And here I am getting back into trouble for it again. And yeah. Exactly. And she'd sit, written a little note for me to give to the head teacher. And I thought the note would say, that I was misbehaved, but actually it said that the that she thought what I'd written was really good and that the head teacher should um, recognise the quality of my writing. And I was like, oh, that's that's incredible. So yeah, it changed it changed my entire school life. It turned it turned I would say potentially that could be a moment that turned my life around from feeling like I was an outcast troublemaker to feeling like I had some value. Because one teacher has, uh, now as you say, that it sounds like you're describing a, a genuinely exceptional teacher, but like the thing that really makes the difference here isn't necessarily the, the great teacher who, who comes in and rescues an entire class and, a, and all that kind of stuff. The key bit here is the teacher who looks at the kids who's been in lots of bother with, you know, the head teacher with authority and decides that they want to see you interacting with one of those authority figures for a different reason. Yeah. Because, and this is something I think there'll be, I think there'll be lots and lots of teachers out there, let's say, let's listen to this, <laughs> he says, um, but all of the people listening um, and, and those who are teachers, lots of people will recognise this because I think we've probably all had this kind of thing where there are maybe like the, the pupils, the students who seem to be in bother all the time in other classes that sometimes we just manage to connect with. Mm -hmm. And that's quite normal. Everyone's different and schools are very, are, are very complicated places, people have different personalities. But just that one little thing, that little decision of, I'm going to make sure, I'm going to take this little opportunity to have this child viewed a different way and maybe in doing so allow them to view things a different way. That's potentially a really powerful thing for a teacher to do. And you're talking there as and you say, you know, that could have been the bit that actually has has changed your life. Yeah, yeah. I think definitely that would be one of the I've had other great teachers since, um, but she was the first. And and my parents were also incredibly supportive. And I want to, you know, be clear on that. They always supported my writing career, but it's different 
when it's your parents than when it's someone in the school where you hated going and suddenly you really love going because you feel like the person there that is teaching you is um is supportive of you and recognizes you as an individual instead of as part of a class that they need to uh you know teach certain curriculum to and yeah, get yeah. get done with the year yeah so how did it I mean, it was a long time ago maybe you don't remember but like what did it do for you in terms of once you've you know you've been sent to the to the head teacher and with this note and you're you know devastated on the way there thinking it's all going horribly wrong again and then it turns out not and I think you were were you nine when that happened did I see that yeah. in the so you've yeah. that would be what p5 something like that yeah, something like that. Yeah, Before I remember. I wrote, it, I wrote it over a summer holiday, so I I'd just been going into probably P five. And yeah, you know, a couple of years to go. So you did another couple of years at that school. What was it like afterwards? Do you, do you have a memory of it feeling different to go to school after that sort of thing? Yeah, yeah, I do. And I guess I always knew what my identity was. I always knew what I wanted to do and, and the kind of person I was but until that point it hadn't been validated and when you don't like trust your own personality you become introverted you become shy but having that validation from someone having that validation not only from someone but also from the head teacher of the school who entered the piece I'd written into a writing competition and I represented the whole school suddenly you've got this pride and this belief in yourself and you know that who you are isn't something to be ashamed of but something that can actually be of value and it changed my, probably changed my personality in like ways that I didn't even realise at the time. Up until that point, I'd never done any acting. After that point, I started going to drama classes, you know? So the confidence that you gain in school, it just goes out into other places. And now, now I'm an actor and a writer and, and it all sort of started, started there. Up until that point, um, I was, you know, quite a, quite a sad child, I think. Maybe that's a bit too much, saying I was a sad child. I think that would probably make my parents quite unhappy to say that. But I was sometimes a little bit anxious. Um, and speaking to other people in the same year as me, which I've been doing, because a lot of them got in contact when they saw my thread, I'm not alone. Um, and quite a lot of people who are in my year and their parents recall them being quite anxious and quite, um, quite shy until Mrs. McGlennon came along. Uh, and started actually teaching us you know like actually teaching us how to be people and it's, it's it sounds as well i mean it's like a time machine for you you'll go back and you know, sneak into the classroom and see it see what see the mechanisms that are going on here you know um something that i something that i was kind of taught early on in teaching is that and i was always grateful for this because i think it was of more value to me and to my students than any specific, you know, teaching technique or bit of knowledge that I ever got or anything like that. I got this advice very early on that was that, that was saying basically the 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 first and most important thing that you need to think about, the thing you've got to focus on all the time, is the culture in your mm -hmm. classroom because and that and that is your responsibility. You need to create a culture where young people no matter their age no matter their background feel as if they can try feel as if they can be who they are and feel as if they can actually you know start to to explore that they need to feel it's an environment where they're going to be supported where they can experiment where they can be wrong and where all these things are okay you know um and it sounds as if that's maybe the the sort of impact that this amazing teacher has has that just what you're describing there sounds a lot to me like how that would look from the other side that decision of a teacher who says that i know what's important here i know i need to make sure th these you know these kids are great and i need to give them an environment in which they feel comfortable being great and developing and if I do that then they'll go on they'll become actors they'll write books they'll do all this kind of stuff you know and it, so it's great to hear that an example of that and hear you describe it in those kind of terms as if that is how it felt yeah it was it was amazing because beforehand we didn't ask a lot of questions in the class because we were kind of we were considered to be sort of disruptive or you know derailing a class if we asked too many questions and then Mrs. McLennan had conversations with us um, rather than dictating. She talked to us. And that's a huge difference. That feels like you're valued and part of something that's happening rather than just being dictated to, which you know, kids don't like. They don't like, they don't like being told what to do. 
uh, it's it's a completely different thing. And, you know, I, I would say it feels like being talked to by a friend, but obviously she was still an authority figure. We still had great respect for her. So it wasn't exactly like a friend. Yeah. But it, was, yeah. it wasn't like being... Um, it, it didn't feel like an enemy, you know? She didn't feel like a scary figure. She felt uh, like a friendly figure. That's an interesting way to put it. This, the, because the implication, of course, by saying, you know, this new teacher didn't feel like an enemy, the imp- by extension, the implication there is that that is how it felt beforehand. Um, yeah. yeah, and I think sometimes it does, doesn't it? You know. Yeah, and, and how can that not affect kids? How does that not affect a seven-year-old to, to feel that way, this environment every day where... Um, it's already complicated. It's already this kind of like, even in the best case scenario, schools are complicated, fairly high stress environments a lot of the time, you know, so to, to have to go in as a young kid and feel that way. And I wonder, like, you wonder how much of that has changed because how much of that was something like you and I are at the same age. So um, the culture of schooling has changed a lot since we went to school at the end of the 80s, start of the 90s. And you'd like to believe that, therefore, this kind of issue has been exercised. I suspect that is very much wishful thinking. I bet mm. you there's still hundreds, thousands probably of kids out there every day who go into school feeling the way that you felt. And this is something that, you know, te- we talk about this as, as teachers. And it, I mean, it comes up. This, I remember this coming up in even the teacher training and stuff like that. That sense of part of the reason that teaching is such a, is such a privilege and one of the things that makes such a huge responsibility is that you are going to affect people's lives it's not yeah. just a case of you're going to teach them some algebra or in my case you know I mean you're going to go through some poems and that'll be you that's grand like the things you do the way you interact with people are not going to just affect their lives at the time but you know, we're sitting here now, is it 26 years since all this happened? But you're sitting there remembering, like, what it felt like when a little bit of the classroom culture changed at, like, nine years old. That's that's an incredible thing to stick with somebody. But I bet you you're not alone. There'll be loads and loads of people be able to tell this kind of story about this thing that happened when they were at school or some kind of change or some kind of feeling that they had. And I suppose one of the things I'm, I'd be quite keen on to get out of this to say to people is, like, it's a hard thing to explain sometimes, right? But like, when you're a teacher, it's not just a job, but mm. you're doing your job. So teachers don't go out um, to to help young people and on a sort of like transactional basis, you know, like I'm going to help them and they'll be grateful for it. It doesn't, you know, one of the early lessons in teaching is that a lot of them are not going to be grateful for this. It doesn't really matter because you're not here to be people's pals you're here to help them and that's um that's absolutely fine but that doesn't change the fact that when it does happen when someone does turn around to you later on and say to you listen you have a huge impact on me yeah. you made a big difference to me I really appreciate that I really appreciate what you did for me it's, it's happened to me a couple of times and it's um it's quite difficult actually to, to, to take sometimes. I mean, it's quite over it's quite overwhelming. But I suppose uh, one of the lessons from your story here is that if people have got that that person that they remember who made this huge difference to them and they want to thank them, go and do it. You know, go and try and find that person and say to them and, t- and show them the difference that they make. Because when you so when you've got in touch with your with your former teacher, um, that must have been a, a wonderful experience to be able to do that for both of you. Yeah, well, you know, I was really taken aback by the fact that she remembered me, <laughs> you know, so that was one of the first things I heard was that um, from her, from her um, nephew's wife, uh, no, it was from her granddaughter, sorry, that said that uh, she remembers you, I just, I just said your name and she conjured up an image of your, your face when you were a child and I was like, that's incredible, um, and I suppose that's, you know, everyone's got stories about their teachers, everyone either has a story about a really good teacher that changed their life or a really bad teacher that tortured them and I think if you're a teacher you can consider the fact that everyone has stories about their teachers either the good ones or the bad ones and it's quite clear which one you'd rather be you know you'd rather be remembered for being the good teacher than being the being the one that tortured people um you're you're gonna affect you're gonna affect people's lives in an extremely profound way either way so 
given that's the case, there's no getting away from the fact that if you do this job, you are going to have a massive impact on, you do that job for 30 years, you're going to have a huge impact on hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of lives. And that's a real serious responsibility. But it's also a massive privilege because there are very, very few jobs that give you the opportunity to have that kind of impact on people. And, you know, 20, 30 years later to see the the consequences of it when somebody you talk, it's just, you know, like you pops up and says, by the way, remember that time when you said, you know, when you write a book and you know how you believed in me? Well, look at this. I've got this thing to give to you now that the, you know, we talk, you hear people often say that teaching is the best job in the world and it's, in lots of ways, it's one of the hardest jobs in the world, but it's things like this that make it easy to remember how wonderful a job it, it is, which is great. Mm-hmm. And I say, I'm sure, um, Mrs. McLennan, I'm sure she'd have felt the same way having you get in touch with her. Is she, is she still teaching, do you know, is, or is she? She actually is still teaching. Is she? Um, she's she's not still teaching at the same school. Um, mm-hmm. I understand that she's retired from teaching, but she's still teaching, if you see what I mean. She's teaching... Um, asylum seekers and refugees so she's she's gone on to to help more people which is you know it's exactly what I kind of would have expected from her so she's she's teaching uh, she's teaching people that that needs help and that seems exactly exactly like her that's that's how I remember her absolutely in keeping with the person that you that you remember that's 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 wonderful um and if she's listening obviously <laughs> um it's it's quite clear the impact that she's had on on your life i will would expect from this that your story is not going to be an isolated one either i imagine i could probably have a a special episode where all of our former students are coming on talking about how great she is which is which is wonderful but as i say like the thing to maybe remember with that is as well is that there are hundreds maybe thousands of people mrs mclennan's out there who've had these impacts for people there's this great story that we should remember, we should be better at remembering, I think, in this country about the impact that these great teachers have had in people's lives and the way people remember them. I remember my primary one teacher and I didn't have an experience like yours. I, I don't remember being, you know, very isolated, you know, feeling very isolated and I didn't, you know, I wasn't getting sent to the head teacher and stuff like that. But I remember my primary one teacher, Ms. Pandolfi, Ms., not Miss or Mrs., Ms., I remember yeah. very clearly. And I remember... So I am, um, I think I mentioned this in the podcast before, but like, so I went to Catholic school, which meant like, you know, primary one, primary two, and primary three, we had a corridor and we would all be out sitting on the floor with our legs crossed and the piano gets wheeled out and the piano gets played and we sing the hymns um, and all that stuff, right? So I remember, I've still got this memory of sitting there and sitting with my legs crossed and singing my wee heart out and Ms. Pandolfi playing the piano and her turning round to look at me, but still playing, like, fingers still playing the keys and I, I remember sitting there and just being fascinated by it this was an, this this was some sort of magic that she could do and I also remember I don't know where it is now my mum's maybe got it in her loft somewhere but I in primary one wrote this wee story and it was a wee story about a superhero I remember and the only thing the only thing I really remember there are two points one of them is that one of his powers was that he could jump over entire buildings the other thing I remember, I'm sure it was all hugely derivative, but the other thing that I remember is that Ms. Pandolfi took it and, and helped me turn it into like a book and the book had like gold paper as the front and the back cover and put it together and say, I don't know what's happened to it. It's been, you know, I'm, I'm 35, so it's 30 odd years ago now, but I'm, I'm never going to forget that. I'm never going to forget that impact. And she wasn't the only teacher that I remember these specific impacts of like, my S6 teacher in the secondary school had a kind of similar impact on me in English, but I think given how, and you sort of touched on this in your thread, you know, the last couple of years have been horrendous. Mm. This has been an, an extraordinarily difficult time to be a teacher. Even before that, as I, you know, I've been kind of banging on about for years and years now, um, the way teachers are treated in this country is appalling. And we've never really taken it seriously about properly supporting the profession. And then the last two years have happened and there are big concerns about people leaving the profession because of the pressures that have come from it, because of how they've been treated. And I think that's maybe why it's important not to downplay any of that stuff, because actually I think that there's a reckoning due and all that kind of thing, as, as you, you hear from all my other work and everything. But I also think it's important not to lose sight of the 
the positive stories like yours, which is why I'm really glad you were able to kind of come on today and, and talk about this. And it's also why I'm really glad that it worked, that you went looking for this teacher so you could keep a quarter of a century old promise and you've kept that promise and then you're going to be able to hand over a presumably signed copy of your book to the woman without whom it wouldn't have happened. Absolutely. Yes, totally. And do you know what you're what you're saying as well about the pandemic at the start of the pandemic when everyone was homeschooling their own children and everyone was like teachers are so valuable this is so hard I don't know how teachers do that and then over the course of the past few years it's like people are forgotten and they've gone back to expecting incredibly difficult things from teachers and blaming them when things go wrong and expecting them to somehow connect with pupils they might never have met through a computer screen it's so hard I've no idea how people are doing it and I wish that everyone could go back and remember back when everyone was having to homeschool their own children when they all thought teaching is so hard <laughs> and then maybe they'd have that respect back for the teachers who are working so hard just now with limited resources sometimes not enough resources like it's an incredible thing and it's so difficult but like you said it can be so rewarding and it makes a real difference in the world. Absolutely. So just as before we finish then, um, your book, the whole thing yeah. that started yeah. this, you know, um, the, the the tick and the talk of the crocodile clock. That's right. Get that yeah. right? Yeah. Tell us a bit about the book then, just as we, as we finish up. Yes, absolutely. So the, the plot on it is most basic, um, is that there is um, a girl who gets fired from a call centre finds herself slightly lost in the world and she meets some uh, sort of wild child painter and together they plan an art heist and Wendy the main character finds herself on the run from the police with a stolen work of art that's the plot the sort of um, themes are about um, friendship mental health depression and suicidal ideation so it's got some serious serious themes hidden underneath little heist plot so uh that's uh the tick and the talk of the crocodile clock and it's kind of based on peter pan and it's available to pre-order from all good bookshops right now excellent well thank you very very much for for joining us kenny as i said at the start i really appreciate it i think it's a lovely story that not only that deserves to be told in and of itself because it really is a genuinely great little um insight into your life and into the impact of the great teacher on you but I think it's one of the as I say one of these stories that we really benefit from hearing and especially now it's something that we really do need to remember that the huge huge impact that teachers can have on somebody's life and the way in which you know years and years later that can still have repercussions and that can still kind of you know ripple out all the way through one life into another and another and another so great to speak to you um, best of luck with the book, obviously. Um, I hope it does really well. I'll be looking forward to getting a copy myself. So uh, thanks very much, Kenny Boyle. Thank you so much for having me, James. Cheers. So that's us for this week. As always, thank you for joining me for the Scottish Education Show and thank you to my guest as well. Please follow the Twitter account, subscribe to the podcast, share it with people on your different social media platforms, tell friends, colleagues about it, whatever. You can also listen to the previous episodes, which helps a lot too. And if there are issues that you'd like to see addressed, stories you think should be covered, or if there are people you think I really should be interviewing, then please do get in touch with your ideas. Of course, if you're enjoying the show and think it's a good idea, and if you can afford it, you can support the project by chipping in a few quid a month which will help to keep the show going and allow me to concentrate a bit more of my time on uncovering important stories in Scottish education and unfortunately rebalancing some of the media coverage of the Scottish education system. Thanks again for listening to the show and I hope you'll join us again next week. Bye for now.